You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today, Sean Reagan. Hello. Hey, Sean. Thanks Hi. for joining us. <laughs> oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I, uh, I just spent a few days with Sean when I was out in New York for Summer Scum and got to marvel at his excellent tape collection, which, of course, I've done numerous times over the years as we've toured and, and hung mm-hmm. out, and you've been gracious enough to host me uh, countless times, I guess. Well, you've always returned the favor, so. That's how we do it. Yes. <laughs> and it came up that, you know, we wanted to discuss a classic record this week, and I think uh, no one better came to mind than Sean to talk about Metgumnerbone. Well, actually, let's uh, before we even go any further, I'd like to talk about the pronunciation of the name. <laughs> All right, <laughs> fantastic! So, Take it so away. I'm not, I'm not sure, but but I believe there's this that the T is silent. Um, this is because when they write the name in runes, they write M E G, and etc., and they omit the T. So um, obviously, I would check with John Milot or the powers above, but I think it's Megumnerbone. So. First interjection. <laughs> that sounds great. And I did check the runic spelling and you are right. There, There is no T. It's a U sound. So much mystery surrounding this project. So we are excited to dig in and discuss this incredible album and the project as a whole. Sean. Yes. When, <laughs> when did you come to McGumnerbone? Uh, early 2000s. It was at a time where there's, you know, throughout the 90s, I collected tapes just sort of because they were available. And then towards the end of the 90s, the advent of the CDR, like most people are like, oh, tapes suck. Like, <laughs> I'm done with done with tapes. Early 2000s, kind of similar thing. And then around maybe like 2003, 2004, I kind of like got back into it and sort of like, you know, became re-enthusiastic um, about tapes. And I was buying a lot of tapes on eBay at the time. Uh, just, you know, and somebody that I was, and it was not necessarily because I was, they were going for a lot of money, but just because that was just the the network at the time. That was how people that weren't directly selling. That was just the thing that was out there. There was no Discogs market or anything like that. And this guy that I was buying a bunch of tapes from was like, oh, I've got this other tape by this uh, McGumnerbone band. I'm like, yeah, cool. Like that sounds really up my alley. And so I picked that up from him, maybe like 10, 20 bucks, something like that. And just took it home and was like, and was floored by it. Um, At the same time, I was already aware of like zero comma and like some other things that were kind of like comparable, but everything about it was really sort of like surrounded in mystery. And even to like, just like put back how far this goes at the time, I actually was the person that submitted it to Discogs. So there wasn't even like that to to draw upon, you know? Um, And I didn't find out much more about the project until uh, Christian Olson of Survival Unit All for Money and all that had published a zine called Shock Tilt around, I think maybe 2005, 2006, the first issue came out. And when I got that, there was like all this, all this deep information about the band. It was like, okay, cool. Well, this is like kind of starting to like make sense in a context, like outside of just this random tape I got from a guy I met on eBay, you know? So. Were you aware when you got that tape that the Rupenis brothers were a part of it or not even aware of that at that point? Not even aware of that. It, it was just totally like a crapshoot. The person was just like, oh, you might, based on other things you're buying, you might like this. And we're just like, here you go. So, what, a, what a great 
time where it was pure mystery to Mm -hmm. you. Totally. How fitting. That's so incredible. And yes, as we've already mentioned, John Malloyd and the Rupenis brothers are three of the main contributors to this project. There are others as well. And on this record, which I don't believe we've even said the name of the record that we're discussing is, how would you pronounce it, Sarah? I was going to say, what's the mispronounce it first? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I I, I felt really confident. I I say Ligelia Horn, but I don't know. I mean. Ligelia Horn? I say Ligelia Horn. I don't know. (laughs) Hey, see, there we go. (laughs) But this also features Sean. And again, probably going to pronounce his name wrong. Brett Braden, possibly is how it's pronounced. Apologies for my awful pronunciation, as always. <laughs> and so, yeah, this is it's such a great, this great early 80s mysterious project. Obviously, more information has come out since, and obviously we'll be relaying some of that information now. But man, I can't I can't even almost imagine going in totally blind on this. That would be thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the time I heard the LP, I was already, you know, familiar with the, familiar with the project. I went blind on the tape. A Mission put out the LP. Mm-hmm. Cool Label also has put out Teachings. And, e- and each release has a Bible passage uh, in the corner. So for this release, it is Revelation 1318, which is... Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred and three score six. Hey, pretty fitting for this incredible album. I feel like even before we start talking about this record or even like about the band in general, like something that for me at least is always important when talking about music is to talk about the context and the time and the place and where it comes from. Because I think that that's something that a lot of people like often neglect you know what i mean it's like you can't talk about splendor geometrico without talking about like franco you know what i mean it's like you you can't remove the context and i and as dumb as this sounds to say because obviously we're all very worldly people here well traveled but you know uh all of the uk isn't london you know what i mean it, it is there there is more to the country <laughs> than right. just like london liverpool manchester you know what i mean it's it's a it's a big place and so this comes from newcastle which if you were to, to take a drive, you know, from London, that would be like five or six hours to the north. You know, you're, you're getting up there, you're getting close to Scotland. And so this is far removed from the center of the music scene at the time. And really like two centers, you have London, you have like the Manchester thing. And this is like, this is not that. And so this is coming from not necessarily rural area, but it's not, it's not the big cool music city. And you have to look at other bands that come from there. Like the biggest bands that came from there, obviously you have new blockaders, but also you have Soviet France who couldn't be like more different from each other, but they also, there's both have a sort of similar quality to them. It's sort of more like esoteric quality. That's like far removed from the, from the big city. And the, and the place that everybody played at was this place called Morden tower, which I'm sure we've all like imagined and like read up, read on tapes, but it's just, I, you know, I've obviously never been there, but it's from, from my understanding, it's just like a small, tiny little room that's on the wall, like on the outskirts of the city that has like 30 or 40 people can go inside. And it was sort of reopened as an artist space in the eighties, maybe late seventies. And, you know, they sort of let, there's some community arts thing, let people perform there. Like White House played there. There was like a lot of other, you know, the people in the avant-garde 
sort of were allowed allowed entry in there. But this is not a band coming from a city. This is a band coming from outside of the city. And I think that's an important part of the story. Wait, humans made this music? No. I don't know if humans <laughs> made it. But it is true, and that is where this is all from. And yeah, of course, Morden Tower, so many classic seen them on the flyers, the mm -hmm. recordings live at Morden Tower from mm -hmm. you know those early eighties days. And so we have that and, and even states in the in the insert that, you know, they did play it at Morden Tower. And that at the time there was electronics in that performance. Yes. However, they would soon drop those for purely acoustic and found object recording. And that I feel like kind of is like the most important aspect of the band. And, you know, obviously we'll get into like the controversy surrounding the band and all this like other stuff later on. But I think that like the sort of the, like the, the, some of the legend around the band sort of like sort of get lost the sort of like mission statement, which is, in my mind, the most important aspect is, is the on location idea, the idea of using the environment as an instrument and the idea that it's not like, oh, we came as a band to set up our instruments and perform this idea that it is an interactive experience that engages our, our immediate surrounding. And it sort of predates, you know, crash worship. It, you know, I don't know if it necessarily predates missing foundation, but it kind of maybe existed in a similar time period, but it's the same kind of like concept, this idea of like this interactive you know, almost like a communal experiences outside of the, the typical band structure. And this is 1983, but yes. when was their first cassette? Uh, the cassette, the first cassette was released either in late 83 or early 84, because some of the recordings were made in August 83. On the and dream so, tape, it's, it's the dream tape. June, July, and August of 83. That's what I mean, like August being the latest date. Those performances are at Montgomery Bone Temple mm -hmm. and open air performance at Black Hall Mill and yes. Chopwell Wood and Ruins of Industry. So the names Black Hall Mill and Chopwell Wood, of course, speak to like they're recording what in in some sort of mills, right? In in like places where they process trees and lumber, Chopwell Wood, right? And but also at Ruins of Industry, which is a name that I can like very heavily associate to Montgomery as these sort of abandoned, disused industrial spaces is what this music speaks to, but also to nature. So like open air performance, right? They're, they're just outside <laughs> at the, at the mill doing this. Mm -hmm. And it's a strange thing to listen to these recordings because they also feel very in sync. Like it, this is very improvisational, uh, ritual and and humanistic music they're making, but they're also they're all all the performers are very well in sync and playing off each other in very interesting ways. And the sort of crescendos come uh, properly is the way I guess I would put it. it. It all makes sense and fits together nicely. Something I think that a lot of people are like maybe like don't talk about very much with regards to even, well, this is less a product of that, but the product maybe of the generation prior is the DIY music scene in the UK of the late seventies and early eighties was really informed by the sort of freak folk scene and kind of just like the sort of post hippie sort of like pre Hawkwind era of the like early seventies. 
And, you know, there are a lot of these like music collectives and a lot of these people that were sort of like old hippies or kind of avant-garde people or sort of freak people that sort of were still around and kind of training these younger guys in, in certain senses and not necessarily in the punk scene, but in the sort of avant-garde, avant-garde world outside of punk. And so even people that didn't directly have contact with these people were sort of still influenced by their peers that were connected to this old guard. Because, you know, the 60s and the the late 60s and the early 80s seemed like a world apart, but it's just like, oh, these guys were just like, you know, 10, 15 years older. Like we all had, we knew people 10, 15 years older, we were starting to do music. And so that sort of level of like improv and kind of stuff influenced by free jazz and all these other things, it was just sort of in the air and sort of part of the, uh, it was part of the chemistry. And, and I think that's important when you're talking about how these guys improvise, that it's, that there is that connection to the older like freak scene. And, and it's so markedly different from many things that we discuss because it is acoustic and, and there mm-hmm. aren't electronics. Like certainly there is, you know, echo room delay, whatever, whatever is causing it. But I, I think that really I, I'm always taken aback by the organic nature of, of what's being made. And, and I think that's what gives it, that, you know, like post-apocalyptic quality to it Mm -hmm. is that, you know, everything's gone away and people have had to rebuild and, and this is, this is what they're doing. What information was in the shock tilt magazine that you had no idea about? I mean, like you said, you really didn't know anything about it. So the shock tilt had just any information was going to be more than you had. Well, sadly, I no longer have that magazine. I lent it to a friend and then the friend moved and then I think somebody else maybe like picked it up and it just sort of, you know, it's gone. So I wanted to actually revisit it this morning before we talked, but I just haven't seen that magazine in years, which if anybody has a copy, I would love another copy. Just, you know, putting that out there, getting done. (laughs) But, um, you know, that was the first I had heard of, I mean, I guess we can go there right now the, the, of any of the, the of the grave robbing thing or like any of that and just sort of how they refer to themselves as like the gentlemen of the club and all this. Because w- when they sort of referred to themselves in the public realm, they, you know, they made they made a mythology around themselves. And it was like I'd never sort of seen that side of it. I just heard it because this stuff at that time wasn't on the Internet yet. Now it's on the Internet, but it wasn't it wasn't then. And so. You know, I, I guess, you know, the, the the big elephant in the room is that the band was all arrested for grave robbing. And I think it was like 84, 85. And it's just kind of that was how the band ended. The repercussions of that actually went went deeper. And, you know, there's a, I guess there's a couple anecdotes about how that happened and why it happened. And I guess the, the reason why it even happened at all was there was a, uh, a people that were like anti-hunting protesters that had there is somebody that had died that was in the same cemetery that was like some hunter and they're like we're gonna rob their grave and like desecrate their corpse the way they desecrate the animals they kill while hunting or something so these people had like had like public protests like robbed a hunter's grave and so the police were found these guys who are trying to take bones to make musical instruments thinking that they found the hunting protesters and then it turns out they're like oh, wait, what are these guys up to? And then all of a sudden they just were like, oh, this is like way weirder. (laughs) And then they just sort of like, so it was by weird circumstance that they even got caught up in any of this shit at all. 
And some of them went to jail. Some of them didn't. I don't know the full details. I don't want to like say information that's inaccurate, you know, about how that happened. But then also the repercussions were felt even in the United States, because while they were raiding their apartments, they found a magazine called Pure written by a young Peter Sotos. And then next thing you know, Pete's apartment is getting raided in Chicago. And then, you know, that's in 1985, the same year that the PMRC is formed. It's like, like snowball. So there's actual, you can trace this Montgomery bone thing to like all this other stuff that happened that, you know, impacted counterculture throughout the 80s and 90s. You know, it's kind of like the butterfly effect with this. So what came before Montgomery bone? Like early projects, was this the first outing of them making music? <clears throat> well, um, I actually have an early unreleased tape <laughs> uh, of theirs that I got through just like a friend who got it from a guy in the UK. And this is, um, I kind of don't really know what, what much to say about this, but it, it actually is their early recordings uh, prior to on their on location recordings. And it has some drum machines and other things, but it's a weird mix because half of it are some of the same recordings that are on the drone tape. And then half of it is, is completely unreleased. And the half that was scrapped is all the stuff that's like studio recordings. So these recordings exist. And I actually would love to figure out a way to make this publicly available. So, but also don't want to do, step on the band's toes if they don't want this content out there. So I'm sort of trying to figure out what to do with it at the moment, but it's pretty incredible stuff. It's just, it's just so foreign and far removed from the, the content you would know from this band. Was there anything pre Mike Governor bone? Like a, were they involved in projects before this that are around or was this sort of the first utterance of this this configuration of John Malott? That I do not know. Okay. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's possible. There, there were bands that they were associated with. Like if you, if the, the interchange compilation that was like put out by uh, John Smith, who was a Montgomery member at times and did a great fanzine, if you can track down copies, um, there's like a, a lot of bands kind of that share members and from the same scene. And there's one band in particular that I really think is quite special called Small Palace Players. Supposedly, according to the liner notes, have a few tapes out, but if you just Google it, it doesn't exist. But there, so I think that a lot of this stuff maybe didn't get out of the region, you know? Um, there was, um, yeah, multiple side projects. Um, John Smith himself had the Ward Phillips project, which released other tape, which is great. But um, as far as actual like proto Montgomery Bone, I don't know if there really is anything. Yeah, and Sean, Sean Bredden was also involved in Death Mag 52, which, of course, had Mike yep. Dando of Condom in yep. it as well. So there's there's a lot of ties to the UK industrial scene at this time that everything kind of spawned, you know, around this. When we're looking at the early 80s, these, these yep. are formative years for a lot of these people. Well, a lot of this, too, is sort of like post throbbing gristle you know because throbbing gristle broke up i think it was 1981 like march or april of 1981 and then you have a lot of these guys kind of started in 1982 and so you sort of have like the death of the of the first wave and then you know you know uh you know psychic tv started coil started chris and kosi started they kind of all splintered off into side projects but at that point there was enough kind of like mainstream music recognition that it was in a way like far removed from what teenagers wanted to do. And so there was a sort of 
a lot of these bands too, if you ask that they, they sort of like pushed back against the first wave a little bit, you know, like if you ask like white house, what they think of throbbing gristle, they're like, Oh, we hate that shit, you know, and, and vice versa because there's, there's like a generational divide. And so this is very clearly what I would consider to be like second wave, you know, and there was like a very clear movement that started around like 82 and it's, and it's far removed, you know, it's far removed from the early stuff. There's like different philosophies and different ideologies and different like methods. And while it may have been informed, by that stuff this is like very clearly like a product of its time post-industrial right i mean that's that's the term we use and it's it's post-industrial music it's throwing this coined industrial and this is the this is the post-industrial this is when it starts Mm -hmm. and it makes sense that this would be post-industrial as so much of the mcgumner bone world is like you said, Gray, the industry in ruins, the the ruins of the buildings, the ruins of industry, and picking up where that all left off. Well, that's also, I think, a very one of the more interesting kind of like dichotomies of the band. Because if you look at everything that they released in the 80s, it's all about, like, as you said, sort of like ruins of industry, that sort of like decline thing. But now the stuff that's getting kind of like reissued and I... I hesitate to use use the word rebranded, but it's kind of like the stuff that's being like put out now in the last couple of years, which I'm very grateful for. It's like awesome that we're getting these reissues and unreleased songs and it's fucking cool is kind of has more of a sort of like folk horror aesthetic and all these other like aspects to it. And that aspect was always present in the band, but it seems to be kind of more present in the sort of like current iteration of it. And so I do think that it's an interesting dichotomy of sort of like the death of industry and sort of like, but it's being like overtaken by nature and full core. It's kind of like a, you know, like a yin and yang thing. I agree that the full core elements always there, but I think it was harder to translate or communicate yes. uh, with the tools back then. When you look at the sort of the crude drawing on the back of the album, which could be some, you know, mm-hmm. some sort of uh, mythical creature. When you look at the skulls and the, the, just the, the, the type of writing and the, the information provided and the aesthetic of the thing, it makes perfect sense within a sort of a full core realm, but it's one of those things where it, it just wasn't the language to discuss that stuff wasn't yes. there like it is today. Those reissues are, are great and offer a great picture of this stuff, but they're also like this record isn't on there in completion. Uh, the Druin tape yep. is not on there in completion. Like there are, there are, it is, but it's just, it, it's broken up. Ex, right. Excerpts. Yep. And it's not, it's not, well, actually, no, the whole thing isn't on there. I don't, I think that back that this, it's actually more the a side that's on there. The B side, which is more kind of like minimal is not on there. I think. So the, there is a, a rebranding is an interesting, uh, word to use for it. It's, it's a selective history of the project. And yep. this actually, album was reissued as a cdr by the band which very few copies were made and supposedly withdrawn due to uh difference in opinion of band members so that's why when we're seeing these reissues that that could be a reason that all of the pieces aren't on there yes I, i've thought about that myself and i agree i love the writing on the record that sort of sets the stage for what you're going to hear when you drop the needle. Tara, will you read that for us? Cold and dark is the place where my bone walks. Miter hangs upon the sodden walls and damp fills the sewage-laden air. 
The ruins of industry left to the ravages of nature long ago become as one. Deserted and forgotten, the temple stands alone, forsaken by most, held sacred by few. But sometimes the door is opened, a shaft of light escapes the outside world. A slow procession descends to its subterranean depths. Candlelight sends the soft shadows scurrying for cover in the crevices and alcoves along the tunnel walls. The sound of a drum meets the silence and mixes and departs. Darkness and silence are all once more. This is a recording of just such an interruption. And the stage is set for this incredible album. And mentioning mm-hmm. darkness and silence too is, you know, you think of these spaces that they're sneaking into, breaking into. And yeah, those are sort of things done under the cover of night. Those are the sort of things done quietly so no one can hear you. But then when they're in there, they're making this cacophony, right? They're they're banging on metal. They're playing uh, possibly out of bone horns. I hear uh, some sort of horn instrument on this. They're rattling stones and metal. And it's the things that happen out of sight and out of uh, out of the public eye that these sort of rituals took place. And it's it's hard to sit and talk about the sound of this. I, I just explained a bunch of it. You know, I just sort of said a lot of the instrumentation and that that conjures to me what this record sounds like without having to describe each moment of the record. And when I'm listening to this, it's a very transportive record. I'm taken to these spaces that they're in. I'm taken to the place where this stuff is being made and things are happening near and far and there's excitement and maybe a little bit of fright and uh, so ecstasy and terror and also experimentation. Like it's improvisational. They're trying things. They're exploring this space that maybe it's the first time they've been there. Maybe it's the 10th time they've been there. Maybe they brought things with them. Maybe they only use the things they found in that space. It's hard to actualize when, when not listening to it. Like when I hear the record, I'm taken there when I am not listening to the record. It's I've left that place. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you know, I, I, I wrote that it feels like I'm in a daydream. This, the entire experience is is trans mundane i actually was asked to describe uh bone to somebody um about a month or two ago and was at a loss for words and it's weird because i could sit down and talk to someone that knows about it for hours i was with some friends we you know we were it was the summer solstice and we were you know sleeping in the woods and climbing mountains and doing all the shit you're supposed to do to celebrate our <laughs> pagan holidays and in mm-hmm. the middle of mountain climbing um a friend of mine uh, i was talking to a friend of mine about mcgumner bone something reminded us of them in the woods and another friend like was like what's that i'm just like I, I don't know i don't I, I can't explain it and and i deferred to my other friend who is equally like it has an equal level of expertise in this. And he's just like, I don't know, folk horror, like play the room as an instrument. I don't just, you know, just, just we were both, but the two of us could talk about it for hours, but explaining it to someone, I guess that you said is like uninitiated is like, is sort of challenging because it's like, it's not, it's not really something you can just describe. Oh, absolutely. And I think McGumnerbone also something that, 
when we talked with Molest with Al, we talked about that that bit of mischief that a lot of UK bands and projects mm. have in them. And I feel that McGunderbone has that, that mischief where, you know, we, you, a lot of times it's put under the, the, the realm of, you know, ritual type music, ritual, industrial, that sort of thing. But there's something about McGunderbone that there's a bit, there's that, there's that UK mischief that goes along with it. The playful spirit. Yeah, that yes. I think is makes it really stand out and really its own thing. Yeah, it's not trying to occupy one polarity of, you know, being frightening or being, you know, co- completely nihilistic. It, it it operates with all of them. You yeah. know, it is it is simultaneously playful and serious. And dark and bright and and human, but somehow, you know, animalistic. Like it, it has all of those spaces, and I think that, you know, that is part of also making it feel very pagan, very mystical, very maybe maybe like an experiment in alchemy. Um, brings all of those because you're not just occupying one space for one feeling. Immediately, we get the the heavy pounding in the ruins. And that's how the journey of this album begins. And there is a ramshackle quality to it. There's, this is, it's happening, but it's ramshackle. There's shambles. It feels that, right, it's the found stuff. Not everything is exactly what it's supposed to be or it's being used for different purposes and it just adds together in this just incredible way yeah and when talking about the playing too you know on especially the the opener the first tracks two two pieces on each side to make up this record and there's uh there's these sort of tempo shifts in it too like it's you can tell it's done on feeling you can tell it's done without specific uh, intent or notation of like, we're going to change this at this time. It just, everything morphs together and happens naturally and organically as they're playing. So it'll become more ecstatic and more fervent and then it'll, it'll shift and you'll be almost slowed down at half speed. Well, it starts to build into something new and different than what it was before. And it's hard to not get swept right in from, from the second you drop the needle down. Yes, you are um, in this stinking, sodden cave. And there's some earth magic that is moving through the air. And I, I think that first track is is really like an invocation and and then by the time you move into the second track you have you know something that's more of a an actual horn that you can tell and a wood block and then the banging and you are just drawn in because i do feel like that this this album ramps up to to the very very last track on the b side when everything you know in its own way explodes yeah i think the last piece is sort of the most distant and varied there's so much going on with it and 
It's also the most prevalent in use of human voice on this record, which is something that we don't hear too much of throughout it. But on the final piece, there's there's a lot more uh, hooting and like, say, there's a good deal of grunting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, grunting. But, that, but, but that's oh. kind of the best the best part. You know, it, it it kind of reminds you that these are like this is an actual thing that's being done with by human beings this is a real moment this is not something that's kind of like edited or overdubbed in the studio it's it's on location and it's really like i don't know the grunting to me is like what is very important is there any indication if there were people present watching when they would do these recordings there's no indication on on the records um I, I went through some kind of like whatever, like interviews and just like random things I had just before this and there's no mention of that, but I get, I always got the impression that there, that there were, that there were people present. It just feels like yeah. there would be. Mm-hmm. Right. But then it also feels like if there are people present that they would be participating. They'd have so to join that, in. So then that's sort of the thing is that maybe the people present where the people were them but of course sean you referenced uh crash worship earlier and yes one of the things about crash worship performances right was that the audience was forced to participate they were they were active participants in the spectacle of a crash worship performance yep and same same thing with missing foundation you know it's the same so the mcgovernor bone could be very much in a similar vein i was always under that impression but i have no idea like i've no it feels like they know. have an ample supply of materials because you get, you know, you, you hear wooden flutes and you hear brass horns and you hear different types of drums, you know, large drums, small drums, bits of wood, sticks. And, you know, I, I don't know if we discussed earlier why the grave robbing was happening. It wasn't like to steal jewels. It was to steal Oh, yeah, I guess I just assumed everybody knew. But you're, exactly. you're, that's a valid point. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. So, you know, that's part of it. They weren't digging up, you know, Nana and fresh graves. They they were going for no, no, you know, no. older style things, you know, and, and, and maybe in, in the U.S. we don't think about having ancient graveyards as much as, as you would in other places, you know. Because, yeah, these are like hundreds ours, of years old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And things are rising to the top. So, you know, maybe you do see a bone sticking out in, in graveyards oh. that are 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years old. I know that we've been places where this occurs. When I was 13 and my family, we all took a trip to Ireland and we stayed right behind an abbey. And there was a, a graveyard and there was just, you could just look down in the grave and see skulls. They, they were just, it, it, yep. you know, it was just there. Mm-hmm. There, there wasn't, there was you, I, I could have grabbed it. You know, I, I was 13. I doubt my parents would have been super happy if I did that. But we did take pictures of it. I have to try to find oh, good, those. Good. I have to try to find those. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in that sense, like if that is the landscape that you occupy, where you're you're present in in quite historic, let's say graveyards, and and those are around you, and you're in these hills, and you know that, you know reaching into history or reaching into dead times and thinking about you know, what sounds they would make in these, in these dead and dark times. Uh, I, I think that all of these sounds are, are so appropriate. There's also a precedent for it in, you know, not only just the post-industrial culture, but even going back to uh, first wave industrial as well. And I guess I shouldn't assume that everybody knows about 
this either, you know, looking at, you know, Zero Comma, for example, who was who was really the band that they sort of idolized. And there was supposed to be an album coming out on Necrophile Tapes, which was the label ran by Zero Comma uh, that eventually that never came out, but eventually just got reissued this past year. But um, that was a project who made a record entirely using human bones as the only instrument. And then the precedent for that goes back to, uh, you know, like David Tibet, like with a thigh bone trumpet and, mm -hmm. you know, and which I, God, I haven't read the, the book in a long time, uh, England's Hidden Reverse. But if I remember correctly, there was like a Tibetan monk who was sort of like around the scene that people knew and that's where those people got turned on to the kangling trumpet and the sort of, which is a Tibetan ritual instrument for a certain sect of Buddhism that's made from a human leg bone. And if you blow it, it's like, a, it's technically a trumpet, but I've played one before. It's like very odd, but it, it it's like, it goes kind of, and it doesn't have, it doesn't have buttons or anything. You can't change, you change the pitch by sort of like blowing into it. And as you play it, it sort of like vibrates differently and the bone sort of warms up. And there's sort of a feeling like as if the uh, instrument starts playing itself after a certain point and the pitch just gets really wild and oh. it's like a strange thing, but it takes like 10, 20 minutes to warm up. And then it just kind of goes like, but there is a sort of precedent like in the, you know, in this counterculture, like prior to the band of human bones being used as instruments and sort of a sort of like Buddhist sort of like Far East spirituality kind of combined with, you know, traditional like English paganism. And so, yeah, it's not just like, oh, we're going to rob graves for kicks, like, yeah. like a fucking, right. like, like a, like a heavy metal band. It, it's like, it's actually like, no, this is used for a spiritual purpose and we're going to like repurpose this as part of our project. So yeah, you're correct. That bears mentioning. <laughs> and the Kangling is such an interesting instrument. It's been used in, in lots of industrial music and of course, like proper, just ritual music, Buddhist music. And it's when you talk about it warming up, what you're actually doing, you know, you're, you're breathing and spitting into it. Yes. You're, you're breathing life and moisture back into this desiccated bone until it starts to react in a different way because of your essence in there, your breath and your, your spit and, and moisture as a very intimate sort of instrument to play. Mm. And of course, a very intimate sort of instrument to uh, forage for, for lack of a better term, to go out yes. in the wilds and collect a bone and fashion it into a horn. Yes. Yeah, there's something about using bones and, and using things that are just naturally imbued with meaning by the nature of what they are. Wood, bone, organic rocks you know, your own breath, your own body, all of these, you know, archetypal materials um, that, that you were using percussively. Sean, what were some of the interviews that you had and where are they from? Well, the, the one that I have in front of me right now, just like in, in paper is, uh, is the as loud as possible one that um, John Smith did about interchange. He talks a little bit about the project. But there, there are a couple others and a couple other articles, but off the top of my head, I don't recall what I'd have to look on, <laughs> look through my things over there. <laughs> um, there's a couple others, like I don't think I have in front of me, it's the booklet for the uh, interchange uh, compilation that they're on. There's also some writing on them kind of connected with 
the Aeon stuff and I don't know. But there's not a lot out there. There really isn't. And, and I think they prefer it that way and prefer the way we're discussing. I mean, we did, we did reach out to John about if he had any interest in, in talking and his response was to keep, he'd, he'd rather just preserve the mystery, let keep it, that alive. let everyone yeah. else put, put what they want to put into it rather than give anything away, which I, I absolutely respect and think it's such a great way. Honestly, to go. I would, I prefer that, you know, I would way rather, even if it wasn't me, sitting here talking, even just listening to you guys talk about it, I would rather hear you guys talk about it than hear him talk about it. Because the second that that happens, it becomes literal. And like, even if like we could pull out tons of facts, it doesn't matter. It's still speculative, you know, because how we like organize those facts is not, I don't know. Well, I, I, I think that that's, I think that's the right decision. And I applaud him for that, honestly. Totally. No, wants to reach out to me privately. Exactly. <laughs> Well, again, yeah, it's just like how you discover the project, just pure mystery. Yeah. And then even just those little bits of information. Again, who knows what's accurate, what's been embellished, what's what's legend. And that's, yeah. you know, that's that's great. That's that's just that's that's what that's how that's legends. That's that's the stories passed down. And sometimes you get that that information gets a little turned. And then the next time you tell it, it gets a little turned and then it just keeps going and. But that's, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's the best. I love that. Yeah. It almost feels as though Gumner Bone should be found in, in like the museum of Jurassic technology where, <laughs> you know, actual history is ambiguous and, and ever evolving. Sean, it's funny. You also mentioned shock tilt and of course, Christian Olson as being a person who mm -hmm. sort of opened your eyes to more information about the project. And yep. I, I have to think that Christian was the person that turned me onto this because we were in contact in the late nineties and early two thousands very heavily and yep. constantly sending me strange things I never heard. I mean, he was the first person to play me at say met Gumner bone, but also like Lee Hazelwood, you know, such yeah. a, such a varied and interesting person who has such a deep and, and wide love of all forms of sort of outlier music that bridge that entire gap. When you first hear this, and there's no information and there's no reissues and there's no anything out there and there's no shock tilt even. It's such a strange, yeah. unusual thing to hear. And if you've heard Corpses Catatonic, if you've heard Zero Comma, if you've heard these things and, and know about this stuff, it, it can cast a different light on it. But all we had back then was mystery and all we have now is mystery. And that's mm. a very strong thing for a project that's been around for 40 years is to still be enshrouded in this mystery. We're still here discussing and dissecting and trying to figure out and share knowledge about this project. It's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> it is very much. Can, can we talk about the, the masks? Certainly not necessarily present on this album, but um, the thing that first impacted me when I saw a band photo, if you will, um, would be the use of the animated, crazy, nearly, you know, Greek tragedy masks. Are you aware when these when those pictures are taken at all, Sean? The the pictures that have been on these these new issues? Not a clue. Issues? Not had a you clue. seen you hadn't seen these mm -hmm. before? I'd seen similar photographs, but all in kind of like material from the last twenty years. Like they're like 
in kind of, there was a newer CD reissue, I think, that came out on a Japanese label. And I don't know if it was actually by Bone or if it was like a a side project or something, but there's like similar kind of artwork on that. And then there's also a movie that one of the, I forget who, it was like a DVD, I got a DVD that one of them did soundtrack for. There's kind of like similar kind of imagery on that. And this is more the folk horror kind of stuff. And do you guys know what I'm talking about, this DVD or? No. At that, I do not. No. Mm -mm. No. Well, well, great. When you come when you come in October, sit at my house, we can watch it. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. Maybe it was John Malott. <laughs> I don't remember which of them it is, but it's like one of the, I think it is him, but it's, uh, it's a series of like two short films and he did the soundtrack to it. And it's very uh, much aesthetically like tied to the sort of like new, Make them their bone image, but I, yeah, I have no idea if those are new photographs or old photographs. Like, not a clue. I would imagine they're new, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Just human-like strangeness. I like them. Just you know, for oh, the yeah. record, I think I think they're fantastic. There's some other recordings made by a portion of Montgomery Bone, uh, just released under their names: the John Smith, Sean Dower, and John Malott. The curfew recordings that Harbinger did. And, oh, those are awesome. Those mm -hmm. are awesome. Yeah, th those are from uh, from 1984, so a little bit later, but yep. also made it a abandoned industrial site in uh, in the UK. And so this was... Is that the same recordings that were released uh, uh, as For the Raven as a bootleg? That I don't know. That's one of the things where it gets confusing. I was confusing. under the impression that those were the same recordings, but I would have to go back and listen to, to compare them side by side. But there is like a release that's attributed to Montgomery Bone that's like, you know, unofficial that it, that are the same recordings as the curfew recordings. Okay. I mean, that I'm 100% confident in. And those recordings are fantastic. Oh, actually, I think it's just called Newcastle, UK. I'm looking. I'm looking at the discogs right now, and there's one the with like the same date as some of the the recordings on the curfew mm. recordings. For the Raven was, I think, supposed to be the Necrophile cassette. That was the one that's supposed to be the Necrophile one. Okay, so it's the other one that's just the sort of like random one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And there's a track on the double disc called For the Raven. Again, mm -hmm. not sure if it's on the the what end up getting issued this year or not again there's still so much so much mystery shrouding now going back to that unreleased tape sean mm -hmm. how did you come about that if you can say or if you want to keep it vague that's totally cool but just private private sale this is how much i guess how much of a nerd i am with this stuff is you know i, I obviously it's digitized and i also then went back and digitized my copy of druin Tape, the drone tape because some of it kind of sounded like similar to that that I lined up the waveforms to be like is this the same as this one this is the same as this one oh because my it's God. a lot of the same recordings but they're from different points like they'll start earlier and then like end earlier or they'll start later end later and so it's like so, so it's like different cuts I guess you could say for half of it and then the other half of it is like just totally like different so it's almost like a sort of which means that it has to be of like made at least in August 1983, because that's when last last you know the last recording on that uh, tape was made. So I kind of figured out where most of the on location recordings were from, and pretty much all the on location stuff was released later 
officially, but the stuff that was kind of scrapped on the official release is the stuff that's not on location. And so there's like one track that's got like a drum machine and a flute, and it's actually pretty cool. One oh. that has like a live bass guitar over this kind of like backwards like loop. And there's like, it's kind of like studio experiments and things like that. So I guess the, uh, the original owner had lost the uh, cassette cover or they got rid of it actually, because there was like some, um, I guess you could say like a controversial cover image. And they were sort of like worried that, you know, having that around their house would cause problems for them. So they threw away the, they threw away the cover and it's just a cassette, which is like really frustrating. So I'd love to see the cover. Um, but so be it, but I, but I would say there's like about like, maybe like four, possibly five unreleased tracks on there. Um, you know, I would imagine it, it's probably from 82 if, you know, they kind of made like their, sort of like really um, because I think that's when the project started, but I don't know. Well, I think the heat now in August, 40 years later, really <laughs> does make you want to, you know, get in this cave. Oh, absolutely. I would, I would love to be in a cool cave, even if it is stinky and covered in what barnacles. <laughs> I don't know. Just watch that 13 lives dramatization of the like Thai cave rescue thing. Oh God! I want to go nowhere. I want to go oh, no, nowhere okay. near a cave. I don't want to watch that. I don't want to. No, hear this her is say like staring Kuyu. This is like this is like in Cappadocia, where or like, Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, or Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, or really, yeah, or like, Rock City in around Tennessee, Chattanooga. Yeah. That's actually what I feel. Yes, because because Rock City is this very strange caves thing but then they made this weird we're an eccentric man who owned the property started doing um mini like fairy tales yeah in black of, light yeah but it's from like it's old carving so dolls it looks so <laughs> crazy and yeah. that's actually i sort of picture mm -hmm. being in that world like a black lit cave with these guys just hammering away scraping and and blowing into these strange objects. I just imagine an abandoned like steel mill or something. <laughs> so the record really has this complete journey to it. And things get emptier, especially on the second side, the, the beginning of, of the second side. There's this scraping and this emptiness and this dark light void that has this just really, really spacious and dark atmosphere that you just get lost in. I, I was just really getting lost on the on the focus listen right before. Yeah, it's a lonely and haunted darkness. It really is. And especially when that that large brass horn comes in on the first track on the B side, I'm like, oh, or whatever the, it is. Is this the Lichelia horn? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. From the Beast, and then, but the but the transition into the second track where it it yeah things start to get moved around like it's like furniture is moving. It feels like something's happening, and it it does that thing where your imagination can't be stopped. You start to try to picture what's going on and it, and it sounds like a small hissy fit is occurring. And then that's when we get a lot of those 
those grunts and yes. we get some energy and it feels like there's a gathering of, of strangeness happening. And, and then we get the, you know, harmonic howling and other elements. And it, it's really like, like the, the crescendo is, is reaching its peak here. It gets so chaotic on this, on the final track. It's, it's incredible. But actual chords and they're so satisfying. It's so satisfying. Yeah, I really, yeah. I really enjoy the way this ends. Just the crashing and the smashing. You can really feel things rolling around. I kept saying it was natural reverb, but I am in no way qualified to make that statement. I mean, I feel that it is, right? I mean, I guess maybe there was post-production, yeah. oh, but I don't okay. think so. No, yeah. no, no. I am no, in no, every no. way qualified they make it to make very that clear. They yeah, make it very clear yeah. that this is yeah. not a studio project. This is like yeah, microphone. Yeah. Okay, good. That's it. I, yeah, yeah. And that's exactly how I felt. I felt it was the, yeah. we were hearing what they were hearing mm -hmm. when they were recording it. They make a statement about that on the insert to the mm -hmm. record, I believe. With a surplus of other devotees to draw from it at any given time, the first ritual was performed at Morden Tower in April of 83 and had a mixture of acoustic and electronic music. Since, that, since then, electronics have been discarded and the music has been concentrated solely on acoustic instruments. The music is totally improvised and the use of studios to record material is avoided at all costs, preferring to use the place of playing as another instrument. Cavernous places are preferred or outdoor locations, subterranean railway tunnels, and the ruins of industry. The music portrays a close link with nature, evoking in our minds the different aspects of the year, but mainly dwelling on winter. I mean, there it is. It's a, it's a perfect way to frame yep. this record. Between that and the writing on the back, you're just open into this world. And it's incredible. It's an incredible world to be in and it's an incredible album. And like Sean said, it's exciting that this stuff is getting a, a new, a new lights being shown mm -hmm. upon it. it with, with the CDs that have been coming out, there's the new uh, box set that has the unreleased album on it. And they've been doing it themselves. You can, or of course, as we always do, we're going to have a link up to make sure you can support the band directly. They just did an unreleased CD out of the ground earlier this year. And as well as the double disc that collects, like we said, it's a bit confusing as to exactly it's parts of some things, parts of some other things, maybe a little different sections of things. It's the mystery is still alive, but absolutely kind of, worth it. It doesn't getting. even matter. It's just it's yeah. it's worth mm -hmm. it's worth getting and it's worth listening to. And I think that's exactly. important. And you can buy a McGumner sigil directly from them. I have one hanging oh, on my wall right there. It's awesome. awesome. I don't know if you guys have your own. Have you the should. have the great pin that is that rests on one no, of my you need one of these. Let jackets. me grab yes. it. Yes. Oh, yes. We have a little <laughs> shrine. Pretty oh, cool. Wonderful. Like I don't know if you can see. It's just yeah. like rusty. Yeah. It's a rusty metal. It's like it's definitely like I don't know how they. I think they made, he made a hundred of these. Like I don't know, like. So I'm ordering like ten of them, just like <laughs> decorating my house. So I can't rad. decide if I want it on my wall or on the window, and like maybe just get another one. 
as you can tell, the four of us absolutely love Montgomery Bone. You've you've heard us, the three of us, talk about it in recent listening. Mentioned multiple times how we needed to do an episode on them, and today was the day. And Sean was the perfect person to do it with. <laughs> we are we are gonna go hop on the Patreon to discuss some archival techniques, and Sean is definitely the person to talk about with this. But Sean. Yes. Let the people know what is going on. What do you got coming up? What do, what do the people need to know? Well, I've got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, first, the, the first and foremost is I'm playing a show this Friday in one of my all-time favorite bands, Backworld, the legendary world serpent band of the 90s and beyond into the 2000s, kind of like the sleeper hit of, of that scene. I feel like they don't get enough credit. Uh, we're playing this Friday with Of the Wander in the Moon and a special guest at Flying Fox Tavern in Ridgewood. Come out if you're if you're in the New York area. Uh, there's also I will be DJing at um, the Cloister Records Dominion of Flesh uh, both days. Uh, myself and my friend Vivian we're going to be DJing for like twelve plus hours. Um, wow. I've got a lot of concept sets planned. We're going to do a tribute to Alban Julius, our fallen hero. I've got a set of Absolutely. all mid-80s French ethno-ambient, all called for my personal cassettes, digitized, that sound collaged for you. Um, going to do like a greatest hits of like the early 2000s Tesco scene and then just going to wing it for the rest. Um, that's going to be really cool. That's going to be really fun. Um, As someone who's had the pleasure of not only having Sean DJ shows I've booked, but also mm -hmm. spending a lot of time with Sean and just having him DJ like my life when we're hanging out and playing records late night, uh, I can say that you you definitely don't want to miss that. I mean, obviously, Dominion to Flesh is a great festival, but yeah, that's I'm an not added the bonus. draw for that, but I'm definitely <laughs> the, the cherry on top. <laughs> and if I'm and, not mistaken, and there's a special guest playing the fest, by the way. And I know who it is, and you're going to want to fucking fly in for that all of you. I'll tell you when the cameras or where the microphones are off, you see yes. you guys can know. And I've got a new project, or not, not even a new project. I've got a project I'm working on with my dear friend Brett from Total Black called Nervin Clinic. It's in a way inspired by a Montgomery Bone. It's all based on breaking into abandoned buildings across Germany and doing on-location recordings. But then we also process the shit in the studio and use it as source material and blah, 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 blah. We're working on an LP. And most importantly, the new Cult to Youth album is finished. And I would like to announce that it's coming out on Hospital Productions Yay. this October. Um, seven Excellent. years in the making. It's a double LP. We wow. licensed a painting from the fucking Louvre to put on the cover. Um, it's amazing. You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 17 years by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.